This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Today, we'll be talking to two of the program chairs for the upcoming O'Reilly Fluent Conference, Kyle Simpson and Tammy Everts. We'll have separate interviews with Kyle and Tammy. They have worked putting together the program for Fluent, which will be held June 11th through 14th in San Jose, California. The event brings together JavaScript developers, web developers, mobile app developers, performance engineers, and others who work on the modern web with training, tutorials, and presentations on all areas of the web, from front-end technologies and frameworks and back-end systems to web design, web performance, security, and more. For more information or to register, go to O'Reilly.com slash conferences. So just a little later in the show, we'll talk to Tammy Everts, Chief Experience Officer at Speed Curve and author of the book, Time is Money, The Business Value of Web Performance. But first, it's Fluent Conference Program Co-Chair Kyle Simpson, an evangelist of the open web and passionate about all things JavaScript. He is the co-author of the HTML5 Cookbook and the You Don't Know JS series of books. Enjoy the show. Hi, Kyle. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So if you had to cite one or two issues that are really on the radar screens of JavaScript developers at this moment, what would they be? I think JavaScript developers are facing a monumental task of juggling a very vast and increasingly more vast ecosystem of tools and processes that go around and on top of and in front of what used to just be opening a text file and typing JavaScript. That, that used to just be the thing, and that actually was one of the reasons why JavaScript was so picked up in the early days and why I think it won the wars of ubiquity is because it's always been a selling point of the JavaScript language that it's such a low barrier to entry. And that meant that you could do a view source on a website, look at a piece of code and say, wow, I see how they did that. They did this alert box and they did this mouse trail or whatever the thing was. And then you could open up your own text file, do that, put it on, you know, FTP it to a web server. And within a few seconds, you had the same thing on your own website. That was attractive, I think, to myself and I think to many, many thousands, uh, tens, hundreds of thousands of other developers, that low barrier to entry. And now, today, as it stands, we have, we've sort of reinvented the process by which JavaScript gets written to put all of this other process on top of it. Of course, we have transpilers like Babel to take the new syntax and transform it into a syntax that doesn't work. Even before you run Babel, you've got linters and uh, code style formatters. And then you've got Webpack that has to take all of your different JavaScript files and pack them together into some sort of module format and ship it in one file and do all of this tree shaking. And I mean, it's just an enormous ecosystem now of tools and process that before you get your first line of JavaScript to run in a web browser, you have to learn all of these other things. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a big challenge. It's not that those tools in and of themselves are bad, but it's that we created a process that made them the gateway to the web. And there didn't used to be that. There didn't used to be anything between me and the line of code that would run. And somewhere along the way, we decided that that needed to be interrupted because it wasn't good enough for some reason. And I think there's a lot of good spirit behind it. We, we want to have good collaboration among teams. We want to approach software development in JavaScript with the same levels of maturity that we might approach it for, say, a C++ project. But I think we've lost some of the essence of what it meant to just write a line of JavaScript code. Uh, so obfuscated now with all of this other stuff. Well, once we kind of get past that barriers to entry issue, 
are there some of these tools and can you cite some that maybe are exciting or of strong interest to, to web developers now? I think web developers clearly have a lot of interest in finding frameworks that will take the common tasks and patterns that they face, whether that be authentication, whether it be uh, performant rendering of DOM updates, page updates, those sorts of things. Those are all difficult tasks to do in and of themselves. And there are libraries that do them well, but frameworks kind of take all of those different libraries, if you will, those different utilities for those things and glue them together in a very specific and opinionated way. It's almost as if the framework isn't those tools, but the glue between them. And so if you look at something like Ember, they have a very specific vision of what a web app should look like, what its architecture should be, and what your approach to building from scratch should be. And that is very different from the way that a Vue developer would approach it, which is significantly different from an Angular or a React developer. So I think what's exciting to developers these days is that for different kinds of projects and for different teams and for different developer perspectives, there are so many different choices that offer very different trade-offs in terms of what you can accomplish uh, if you pick one of those frameworks or another. And while we're on the topic, some of them have even approached what I would call the level of uh, platform. Ember is kind of more even than a framework, and really it's like an all-in sort of platform, not unlike something like a Meteor, for example, that incorporates the server side with Node.js. It's a platform. It's a way of constructing your entire app, and you buy into that. And there's a lot of benefits to that. Um, I think that's exciting to developers to explore. And it's also exciting because if we wait around long enough, a few weeks or a few months from now, somebody's going to come up with a new one that has a whole different exciting set of pros and cons to it. Well, maybe we can come back to uh, to some specifics on some of those frameworks a little bit later. But I wanted to ask you about the the Fluent Conference, and you've helped put together the program for it. And I imagine you, you don't necessarily want to play favorites, but are there any particular talks at the conference that you're really excited about and looking forward to? I would say rather than talking about specific favorites, I did have several specific favorites, and I lobbied hard during the proposal review process and the selection process to make sure um, that I tried to get a few ones that I cared about in the schedule. And actually, that range for me, uh, normally it would be focused very heavily on tech. I'm, I'm a tech-minded person. And when I attend conferences, what I'm looking for is the talk that goes much deeper than something I've just heard or read in a blog post somewhere. So I'm, I'm always looking for that kind of deep, nitty-gritty. And so I lobbied for a number of those. We had some very deep technical talks that are exciting to me as a technologist. But those weren't even the ones that I lobbied the hardest for. I mean, I think we got a couple of those in. A few didn't make it, unfortunately, just because of uh, space constraints and so forth. But some of the ones that I lobbied the hardest for were, I think, reflective of a bigger shift, hopefully industry-wide, but certainly within certain pockets of our industry. And definitely, I myself, I would consider myself part of that. A shift from thinking about what we do as being about the technology and shifting to thinking about the technology as being an offshoot of what we do is relating to other human beings. Okay. Meaning that, that the technology is almost emergent from the thing that we do best as humans, which is to relate to each other. I, we, we have several talks on the schedule that I think are trying to pull back and say, yes, the tech is fun. Yes, the tech is exciting. And yes, it's transformational. The web that we are building is the single greatest invention in the history of mankind in terms of empowering 
the 7.6-ish billion people on the planet to have their own voice and to have their own way to express and connect with other people in the world. That is unlike anything we've ever done and maybe unlike anything we ever will do in humanity. And that's exciting and transformational. And I, I find that to be somewhat profound that I have any tiny little sliver of part to play in that bigger narrative. But we can pull back and say, None of that matters. None of what we do matters if we look at what we're doing as a series of bits and pixels, and we forget that behind those bits and pixels are people. And if you think about that at sort of a almost a tactical level, a team is more than just a single developer who in, on an island, isolated from everyone else, goes off and writes a whole set of code and FTPs it up to the server and then it's done, right? Like that that's not the way things happen. Maybe it was for a time the way things happen, but now increasingly what we do is build these things in the context of teams. And actually that's why there's so many great frameworks and libraries out there, is because those are focused on helping teams collaborate and divide and conquer bigger tasks. So we shouldn't focus on the framework part, but think about the framework as being emergent from what we're doing as people relating to each other on a team. And there are different uh, chemistries on teams, and there are different breakdowns in politics and social and cultural biases. And, and some of that influences your choices on that technology. So I think what we are doing well at Fluent is trying to have a broader narrative and discussion about where the web currently is, what it even means to be the web, because that in and of itself, that word is sort of Morpheus and just sort of thrown around and mm -hmm. different companies have different opinions on that. Maybe that's something we can unpack. But, but whatever you call the web, I think Fluent is dedicated to having a conversation about not only what makes up what we do of the web today, but what are the things that we are doing now where the web will be something different tomorrow and next week and next month and next year? What, what does that mean? What is our role? What is our responsibility? There are a lot of ethical choices that I think we must begin to face. And we, we have those conversations in a broad sense in technology. But I think web developers often don't have those conversations, mostly because they're being dictated by their boss or their client what to do. I think we're increasingly trying to say, no, you the practitioner of the web, you need to be part of that conversation. You need to talk about when you are asked, for example, to implement some ad tech, you know, sort of technique to, to do subversive advertising on a website. What does that mean? Yes, you're doing what your boss says, but what does that mean for what, what web we're building? Those are the kinds of conversations I hope we're having. And so a number of the types of talks that I lobbied for the most were the ones that pulled that lens back and tried to focus on it's bigger than just what's the hot framework. I think Fluent for a while in the, in the first few years was like the framework conference because frameworks are the most obvious touch point that we developers would have. But I think what we're trying to do now is have a broader conversation. And I'm excited about that. I'm, I'm honored that I get to be part, uh, you know, at the helm helping do some of that. That said, <laughs> let me bring it back to technology now. As far as a couple other things that are on the program, there are going to be some talks on functional programming and reactive programming. And I wanted to get your take on like how, how those two topics are, are playing out in the community now. As someone who is, I think, relatively speaking, somewhat new-ish to adopting or trying to adopt functional programming into my toolbox, 
this is something that I have been not, it is not new to me that there is something called functional programming. Uh, I probably first experienced it as much as two decades ago, um, early on in my software development career. And I, like potentially some people, thought, well, functional programming, the word function has, and I use functions, therefore I must be doing something of functional programming. And I didn't really have much visibility into any deeper meaning of it. And anytime I did try to get a deeper visibility into it, I was confronted immediately with monads and endofunctors and and other kinds of terminology that mean something very important to a functional programmer and are useful for them to intercommunicate with each other, but are largely very intimidating and impenetrable to the outside crowd. And so that was my experience with functional programming for, again, almost two decades until relatively recently, that is the last couple of years, that I I began to try to articulate what I knew about functional programming. I'd been asked for many years to write a book. Many people had had been saying, well, you you wrote these other books, so when are you going to write the you don't know functional programming book? And, And so I I said, well, okay, maybe I will. And so I I actually have just recently put out um, a book called Functional Light JavaScript. I spent about a year and a half researching and writing and refining this book. And it's my journey to try to learn functional programming without that top-down academic terminology notation kind of approach, and hopefully maybe invite others. And so I am excited and newly so about functional programming. And I am also feeling like when I write my own code, I'm still not good enough at it to do it from scratch. It's still like I write it the old crappy way and then try to refactor with with some of this more newfound knowledge. That's one of the things that excites me because that journey that I'm going on is tracking closely with the journey of many others. If you look at what's happening within the broader ecosystem of JavaScript right now, functional programming wasn't really a thing that hardly any JavaScript programmer would talk about even five years ago. I mean, maybe there's a few little uh, a few little adherence to it, but it was not broadly talked about. And actually, we saw... Uh, a few frameworks that came out that led the way, but maybe not even as obviously so. I'm speaking specifically of Redux within the React ecosystem. Redux, of course, is not just React. I always feel the need to remind people that Redux can be implemented in other things other than in React, but it's they are very commonly paired together. And Redux takes some of the very core principles of functional programming and codifies them quite literally into the flow of data, this you know single directional flow of data, and the, the idea of a reducer. I mean that that's all at the very at the very heart of functional programming. So we see that starting to happen where people are learning functional programming and maybe not even knowing that they're learning functional programming. And then later they're like, oh, that's functional programming. I want to learn more about that. So they're they're hungry and they're searching. Well, we're, we're reacting to that. We know at Fluent that if there is this growing grassroots trend of people hungry for more of it, and if there are people for whom the could just go learn Haskell and read the mathematic notation. If there are people like that out there, like myself, who need other paths to uh, come to awareness of functional programming, then it's it's it behooves us. It's it's incumbent upon us to do so. Sure. And so I'm excited that we we have embraced that. And I think the same would be true of reactive programming. It's true. It's, it's it's interesting that reactive programming can be described, and I like to describe it as applying all of the concepts of functional programming 
over time. That's basically what reactive programming is. Everything that we know that works in a sort of synchronous fashion on an eager set of data, we can extend to working over time across a lazy set of data. Uh, I think that's a perspective, maybe not the only one, but a perspective that uh, means that reactive programming is also very important. Observables, for example, that's also very, very important and is starting to get a lot more attention. We have big frameworks now that have embraced, sort of wholeheartedly embraced the notion of observables. And we have companies like Netflix that completely rewrote their architecture from scratch oriented around that. And so that is naturally filtering and, and sparking a lot of curiosity among people. That's exciting. And we uh, at Fluent, you know, we would have to, if we were doing the community a service, we would have to make sure that we brought up that content. So I'm excited. There are a couple of very good deep dives into each of those um, that I hope will continue that spread of curiosity among the community. Yeah. And you mentioned React a few moments ago, and there are presentations touching on WebAssembly and React, and both of those technologies seem to have some buzz going on among web developers. So what are your thoughts about their impact or, or importance? So React, I mean, clearly React has garnered an enormous amount of attention um, and, and praise from the community, and I think rightly so. It is clearly helmed by some of the smartest people that we have in our community and some of the most passionate and creative thinkers that we have. And I think actually you could you could sort of tell that story from a technical perspective just by simply looking at the diff, the, the, the Git history of the React library and looking at the things, not like new features being added, but just looking at how React itself has evolved. It's an amazing story of creating code and then refining it and battle testing that code. So I'm amazed by that. And so I think there is a lot of do attention and praise that that React has garnered. I do sometimes wonder whether or not we are shifting away from understanding how our technology works to only understanding that we can do something with it. So for example, a lot of developers now don't even really get much intuition about what's happening to update something in the page. Because we sort of think, well, you know, React figured out the only best way to do that, so let's just let that happen. Well, if you compare what React is doing, for example, to what maybe Ember is doing with their Glimmer engine, there are actually different ways to do this. They are not just the same thing with a different name. They are making different trade-offs. And someone who's a technologist like me, I would I would geek out on those, and I would love to have more talks where we're comparing the sort of deep technicals. But as a broad pattern among the community. It's almost like we've told developers, oh, you don't need to worry about any of that stuff. Let the f let the few really smart framework authors think about that stuff. And you just pick whichever one has the most stars on GitHub or whichever blog author has, has told you this is the hot thing to do. I, I wonder whether or not there are important details that are getting glossed over in those trends. Well, are there any other like specific pain points or frustrations in the developer community that, that we haven't talked about yet that, that are going to be discussed at Fluent? One of the stresses that has been present on the web for a number of years, and it has expressed itself in multiple different ways. Early on, we had, and by early on, I mean, say, somewhere between five and 10 years ago, we had an enormous amount of pressure that was focused on the fact that JavaScript, the language as an execution environment, was not 
up to par with other language environments that would run the same equivalent code, but JavaScript would run it 10, sometimes 50, maybe even 100 times slower. So one to two orders of magnitude slower than the equivalent in, say, a compiled C++ program. So there were whole swaths of applications that just couldn't even run on the web. You know, if you would imagine 10 years ago running video editors on the web, nobody would do that because the amount of processing to do that would just, it would never work. You could not wait multiple hours to make every single little edit to a video, right? So there were whole swaths of things that people wanted to do with JavaScript because the web is this great portal to the world and this great platform upon which code can run in so many different scenarios. And they couldn't do it. And JavaScript execution was a bottleneck. And and in many ways, that's a good thing because it spurred what we kind of affectionately refer to as the browser wars over the last decade. Google, the V8, when Google's Chrome browser and V8 came out, and then Mozilla Firefox, and to to an extent, Safari, and now even, you know, Microsoft with Edge, they all said, hey, we're in this arms race, if you will, to have the fastest JavaScript execution, because people do want to write applications, and they saw JavaScript execution as a determining factor for getting users. Well, what happened over time was that they got really good at executing JavaScript, which sort of exposed other parts of the pipeline that there wasn't as much that could be done. And in a nitty gritty sense, one of those things that was exposed was the compilation part of the JavaScript experience. It There's only so much compilation that can actually happen in any given millisecond. And even if you make the, the runtime of your JavaScript program fast, if there's a delay, a lag in getting started because there is this precious few extra milliseconds being spent on compilation, it just exposed that bear. And now everybody, when they did their profiling, they're like, oh my God, the compilation is taking 35% of my time. 35% was... It's the same physical number of milliseconds, but now it's the big percentage. So it's the thing getting all the attention. And so over the last four to five years, people have been asking, is there anything that we can do? Could we change how the web fundamentally gets the code that it runs? And one of those big questions that grew out actually from the execution race which was ASMJS um, that Mozilla had. And that famously is how we, for example, got the Unreal game engine running, 3D rendering running at better than 60 frames a second natively in a browser, right? That happened because of all of that. But what sprung out of ASMJS was, what if we took it to the next logical step and said, we could represent the code in a more efficient way before it even gets to the browser? What would that mean? Could we cut out the whole compilation step or drastically reduce it? And out of that, born over the last few years, is WebAssembly. And WebAssembly is a different representation of a program that can run natively in the browser. It is not a JavaScript program. It's a representation of a piece of a program. You'll always still have JavaScript, but we'll see a a natural shift towards the most computationally intensive parts of an application shifting to being represented in that way so that they are not facing, for example, the bottleneck of compilation time. But there are other you know, there's that the pros are that now we're going to be able to achieve potentially much, much more impressive performance gains. Uh, it also means that 
there are more languages that can now go directly to the web as opposed to having to sort of end themselves through JavaScript translation. They can now target WebAssembly directly, and that's an amazing thing. But one of the downsides, or maybe not, you know, others listening may not agree with me that it's a downside, but one of the clear offshoots of that means that potentially three, five years from now, say, a new person who comes to the web and says, I want to learn about how this amazing web page is working, this photo video editor thing that I'm using. How does it work? They're going to potentially try to do a view source the same way that 20 years ago I did when I opened up my first Netscape web page. They're going to do a view source and they are still going to see code. But now instead of seeing one JavaScript language, if you will, they may see five different languages. They may see Rust and Go and JavaScript and, you know, a couple of others thrown into the mix because, well, all, you know, we've taken the gloves off, right? If, if we want raw performance, and that's the demand of the web platform in service of that demand, let's not worry at all about what the code looks like. Let's just get it in the fastest possible representation, the smallest possible representation. That's a good thing because the web has these demands, and if the web doesn't respond, somebody else will. So I'm glad that we're responding, but I worry that what we're getting to is maybe a future where the onboarding path is even more daunting than I what I mentioned at the beginning about tooling and you know all of that pattern stuff. To now, it's like, well, actually, to build a modern web page, you're going to have to go learn Go, Rust, and JavaScript. Uh, okay. You know, that, that I think may be more difficult. So WebAssembly is a huge advent for JavaScript. And what that means five and 10 years from now, it's going to be a very, very different web as a result of this. We need to begin having those conversations. And so you'll see that we have a couple of uh, tutorials and talks that are dealing with that and starting those conversations. It's too early to have any conclusions yet, but we're having those conversations and that's going to be a big deal. Yeah, and, and finally, Kyle, uh, aside from these kind of questions about what the web will look like in five, ten years. When you look ahead, uh, what do you see as far as where JavaScript is going and where the community is going? The community has never been as strong as it is now, and I anticipate that that will continue to grow and deepen and strengthen. That is a great thing. And for someone like myself, who I consider myself a, an evangelist of this open web technology and community, and I try to use every platform that I have to promote the connections and bonds between each other as we build, I'm glad for that. And I'm, I'm amazed at how good we're doing. And, and I think we've, we've, we've got plenty of challenges. There's no question. There's a, there's a lot of uh, structural problems, bias and and in both gender and race and other lines like that. We've got a lot of work still to do there. I'm glad that we've we've made that progress um, so far, and, and I hope we continue with that. I think JavaScript as a technology has a bright future. I continue to be very bullish in my outlook on JavaScript. I think it has a bright future. Some people are predicting that JavaScript will diminish relatively because of these other things, like, for example, WebAssembly. I think it's only going to put JavaScript more at the forefront in the same way that JavaScript running on the server didn't mean that JavaScript in the browser <laughs> mattered less. It meant that it mattered even more because now there was more JavaScript in more places. And now we see JavaScript in light bulbs and robots and refrigerators and TVs and everything else. It, that's only going to continue. So again, I'm very pro on JavaScript and on its future. And I think it's important that developers continue to see the benefit of learning that language 
learning how the language works. And that's my influence to the community is through the education around the language itself and not just how to do something with a framework. Uh, what, but, but the language itself is kind of facing a little bit of an identity crisis because the language itself has been dealing with those same, this is just, you know, I feel like a broken record, but it's been dealing with that strain to grow bigger and better capabilities. And we have been servicing that pressure by adding new, and by we, I mean, TC39, the guiding uh, body behind the language has been responding to those demands and those requests from the broader community. But there are in some respects, sort of pulling JavaScript in different directions. There's the JavaScript that is, uh, I would say, more classically oriented around an authoring environment, meaning we're creating features that are designed for JavaScript developers to actually type out themselves. And there are a number of amazing improvements that have happened over the last number several years, ES6 and beyond you know, that are in service of that. But there are also many other features that are being added to JavaScript, which, you know, from my perspective, looking at, I can't imagine any developer actually using that feature. And so you want, like, for example, proxies, I, I, the, the concept of a proxy is incredibly important in a language, and I'm glad it's there for metaprogramming and other, and other reasons. I cannot, I literally cannot imagine any end user developer making widespread usage of that feature. Why then is that feature in the language? Well, it's there because JavaScript has another constituency besides just the end developer, and that's the the developer who wants to target JavaScript from some other environment. They need features to express things that are more natively expressed in other languages, for example. And so we see this pulling apart of the language in these different directions, things being added which serve very different constituencies. Now, some people say, well, that's fine. That's great. The, the end user doesn't need to learn all of that other stuff. That's true. But the bigger the surface area you create, the harder a path you make it for people to figure out what to learn. And that, that creates an even more profound need for people to focus on education around the, the web and around JavaScript specifically. And so I continue to see myself um, in an important role there. I think as JavaScript keeps getting pulled in all these directions, it's going to be good job security for those of us who, who educate about JavaScript. So. And Kyle, if our listeners want to find out more about you and your activities, where should they go? Two places that are the best to find me. First of all, I'm, I'm Getify, G-E-T-I-F-Y, basically everywhere. But the two best places to find me are either on my Git hub account which is getify or on my twitter account which is also getify so okay. I'm, I'm i'm working a lot in javascript i continue to be in that and you can come find out what i'm doing at either, at either of those places great well kyle simpson thank you very much for joining us it's been an honor thanks for chatting it was great speaking with Kyle Simpson, and now we're going to bring on another program chair for the Fluent Conference, Tammy Everts. She is the Chief Experience Officer at SpeedCurve, where she helps companies understand how visitors use their websites. She focuses on the intersection between web performance, user experience, and business metrics. She's also the author of the O'Reilly book, Time is Money, The Business Value of Web Performance, and she co-curates WPO Stats, a collection of performance case studies. We'll have links to WPO Stats and to Tammy's book in the show notes that accompany this episode. Hi, Tammy. 
Hey, Jeff. Well, let's start with this. You've recently written an article for the O'Reilly site titled, Building for the Modern Web is Really, Really Hard. So what would you say is the biggest pain point currently facing those who are designing for the modern web? Yeah. And you know, in the title, I really felt I had to put that second really in there. <laughs> it, it makes the headline, yeah. It is really, really hard. Um, like, you know, as I mentioned in the in the piece, you know, I started um, working on the web in the mid-90s when, you know, your page had some copy and maybe an image or two and some simple HTML and that was it. So, you know, the, the, today the web is just so mind-bogglingly complex, like an individual web page, four megabytes in size, contains hundreds of assets. It's, you know, really relies on a lot of different programming languages and uh, developers and designers are somehow magically expected to take all of these assets, all of these scripts and somehow make them automatically perform reliably and consistently on everything from a smartphone over a 2G connection to somebody who's got like blazingly fast internet on their on their their desktop computer. So it's that to me that's the really big challenge that the web has just become so complex and the user base and the types of devices and 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 uh, bandwidths that people are are experiencing are, are so incredibly diverse as well. And I mean, diversity is great and we welcome it, but it's, you know, it, it presents a lot of challenges as well. There's no longer that kind of like one size fits all because you knew that everybody was using the same crappy 14 one modem on a terrible desktop computer, you know, but at least there's a consistency to what you knew you were, what you roughly knew you were building for back in the day. Well, can you talk about some new, any new technologies or tools that are kind of creating a buzz in the community now? The real thing is when we talk about um, at Fluent, you know, we, we care about the three pillars of performance and we we call them, uh, we, we label them as performance, meaning web speed, accessibility, and security. And then there's also a bunch of other, other pieces as well to that, like uh, availability and scalability and that sort of thing. But but for our purposes, we're talking generally about like speed, accessibility, and, and, and making the web safe for people. And so the great thing is that, I mean, for the space that I come from is, all about how do we measure how people experience the web and then how do we correlate those measurements to um, user behaviors. And so the really great thing is that there are more and more tools available that let you actually do this. So on the performance side, on the accessibility side, on the security side. So what's exciting to me is not necessarily the that these tools are, are, are new. It's the, the fact that they're being uh, more and more broadly adopted by, by companies. So for example, on the performance as, as speed side, we have uh, more and more companies. A lot of people have been using synthetic monitoring tools for ages, like WebPageTest is the most famous one, webpagetest.org, um, that, that people can use to test their pages um, over simulated bandwidths and browsers and things like that. And that's awesome. But now we also have real user monitoring, which lets you actually see how your users behave in the real world and actually measure that and track that over time and correlate page speed to uh, to user engagement. So you can see, oh, okay, well, if my pages get this much slower, bounce rate drops off or, or sorry, bounce rate increases actually, or revenue drops off. Um, so it's, it's really great to see these tools being more and more widely used. Um, on the accessibility side, um, there's so many great accessibility tools. I, I, I don't even want to name any for risk of, of 
leaving leaving anything out. But if people are interested um, in looking at just all the different accessibility evaluation tools that are available that will actually look at your pages and tell you how they work, you can just Google W3 Web Accessibility Tools. And there's a great list there that's curated by the folks at W3. And, and continuing on regarding like how users experience the web, I, I know you've written about this in the past. Can, can you talk a little bit more about the psychology of what users expect from websites and you know, especially anything that might not be commonly known and how that plays into what developers and designers and UX folks need to do? Yeah, um, it's it's a really good question. And before kind of getting into um, the the question of sort of what are some interesting uh, what are some interesting things that people might not know about how users use the web, I always want to start with a, a caveat that people wish that there was a an everyman or an every woman that they were designing for, and I kind of alluded to that earlier. And the first thing I always want people to know is that, you know, unfortunately, there isn't, there's no, there's no single person that we're building for. And this is a great thing that kind of modern measurement tools let us do is actually measure real user experiences and see that breadth of user experiences. So realizing there's no kind of single psychology to um, how people use the web, even amongst an individual, because, you know, how I use the web when I'm super relaxed and just hanging out in my office and, you know, I've got all the time in the world versus how I use the web when I've got, you know, kind of spotty 3G because I'm traveling and I'm using it on my phone and I'm kind of stressing out because my flight's been canceled and need to reschedule. You know, those are those are very different use cases and very different psychologies just within one individual. So having said that, the great thing about performance tools as we have them today, like the real user monitoring tools that we have, is they let you at least gather all of this real user data and put it into buckets and cohorts so that you can at least understand kind of large group behavior and what are kind of trends in user behavior. So it really interesting example of this is a study that I I worked on a few years ago where we I took three cohorts of traffic and um, introduced artificial HTML delays into two of the cohorts. And so what that meant was that for one group, we slowed down HTML by 500 milliseconds. For another group, we slowed it down by a second. And for the third group, we just, we optimized, we gave them a kind of an optimal user experience, uh, like fully optimized in the sense that, you know, images were compressed and, and, um, and the browser caching was, was, was optimal, that sort of thing. And what was really interesting was that predictably, you know, we kind of hypothesized that over the the 12 weeks that we that we did this artificial throttling, their artificial delay, I should say, um, we predicted that the returning visitor retention would be poor for the sites that had the delay. And that was that played out. The group that experienced a one second delay was um, had a much worse retention rate than the optimal group. And the group with a 500 millisecond delay had a worse retention rate. What was really interesting, though, was that when we stopped the study, they stopped the research at, at 12 weeks, and we served all three cohorts the same optimal experience, we actually continued to track their behavior for six more weeks. And what was really interesting was that the six weeks after we, um, we 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 stopped the artificial delays. The slower traffic, the people who had experienced the, the delays, continued to have a lower retention rate. So even though they were getting the same experience as the faster groups, there was that kind of reluctance to return. And so the the, the kind of takeaway from that was that. Yes, even if you make your pages faster again, that negative user experience that lasted for 12 experience had kind of an ongoing echo effect on people's future behavior. So I thought that was really, really interesting. And I would love to see more research in that area because I don't think it's been studied enough. Well, I want to come back uh, and do more on performance in just a few minutes. But first, I thought, let's look ahead to Fluent. And Mm -hmm. I asked... 
Kyle, this question too, but I wanted to find out if there are certain fluent presentations that you're particularly looking forward to or excited about. Oh yeah, so many, so many. Um, so uh, I talked earlier about um, accessibility and security. So um, I mean, the whole, the entire, all the tracks are amazing. And so I just the, the fact that I'm mentioning a few names here, I'm excited about all the talks. Yeah. And it was actually really, really hard to to um, have to turn down some of them. Sarah Fetterman is going to be talking about um, techniques for making accessibility a priority in your organization. So uh, I think that's a really, really useful talk for people who might be kind of fighting a one-person fight to make accessibility uh, an issue for everyone. Nicholas Steenhout will be uh, outlining an accessibility testing workflow that you can actually incorporate into your data day-to-day into your day-to-day work. And uh, Juliana Gomez is going to have a great talk where she's going to be demystifying WCAG standards. So it's a really great mix of, it, within each talk, kind of high-level, inspirational, big-picture thinking with very hands-on takeaways that you can get from those talks. Um, on the, in the security track, Annie Lau is going to be talking about how truly I manages vulnerabilities and uh, providing a really great case study there. And I love case studies, so I really love it when people come to us from um, organizations, big and small, and tell us how they actually made things work in the real world. Michael Swayton will be talking about kind of the cryptographic ecosystem. And as somebody who is less knowledgeable about security, I'm really excited about that because it's, it's an area that I want to learn more about. Um, and then kind of getting back to performance. Uh, again, lots of great talks. Maximiliano Fertman is going to be talking about hacking web performance. And Max is always a great speaker. His talks are really well attended and I always learn a ton from them, even though I've been working in this space for about a decade. Katie Seiler Miller from Etsy will be sharing a case study about how they fixed mobile performance issues. Mark Zaman from Speedcur will be talking about how to identify the performance metrics that uh, are actually most relevant to understanding user experience because there are dozens of performance metrics out there. And one of the common questions that gets asked is, well, you know, if there are 80 different metrics, which are the ones that I should actually focus on. And uh, Nick Jansma and Charlie Vazak from Akamai are going to be talking about how to identify third parties that are that are hurting pages. And that's kind of a perennial topic. Third-party performance is a really big issue, will continue to be a really big issue. So I'm really looking forward to that talk as well. Back to the topic of performance. You've given a presentation in the past titled Performance is About People, Not Metrics. And as you, as you point out in your book, Time is Money, speed really does affect the bottom line kind of metrics, right? Yeah, I have yet to work with a company that wasn't able to correlate the performance of their site or app with some kind of business metric. So, um, you know, so so I always, you know, if people people kind of try the obvious ones, like, oh, let's correlate uh, load time with conversions, and maybe they don't see any movement in those metrics. They make pages faster, but they don't see any change in conversions. Then I kind of point them towards, well, how about correlating start render with conversions? Or how about correlating performance with bounce rate? Or sorry, uh, load time with bounce rate. If you look hard enough, you will find uh, a business metric that matters for your pages. And so that can vary from um, conversion rate, bounce rate, customer retention, cart size, you name it, you know, user engagement over time. So yeah, there's so many great case studies. If you're, if people are actually looking, I mean, thank you for mentioning my book. I really appreciate it. <laughs> but if people are looking for um, kind of a living repository of great case studies that they can find where um, that are, that, that are tagged with, with all the different business metrics that people might care about. I also helped curate with Tim Cadleck, um, a site called WPOstats.com. And um, 
it's just a really simple interface for just kind of looking for for, for case studies for again from out in the real world case studies and research that uh, that, that talk about all of these things. But when you say it's about people, not metrics, what are you getting at there? What am I getting at? It's really good. <laughs> um, so I think what. People tend to get married to their own metrics. So, um, and, and, uh, it's really easy to get caught up in the metrics that say your service providers tell you you need to care about. So they'll tell you, oh, you need to care about fully full load time. But actually, the full load time of your page might not actually matter in terms of user experience. So an example of this, just to get specific, is Amazon. So Amazon's pages are huge. They're, you know, three or four megs. Um, they take... Fully to fully load, sometimes twenty seconds. Um, but nobody thinks that Amazon's pages are big and slow because when you go to to uh, any page on the Amazon site, typically you start to see meaningful content in under two seconds. The page, of, at least you know what you see above the fold, has um, has mostly rendered in in that in in that under two second sort of range. And it feels fast to you. So if you're just focused on full load time, but you're not focused on user experience and what the user actually sees, then you're focusing on the wrong metric. Or if you're focusing on page size or page complexity, there are other reasons to care about page size. For example, you know, if you're serving pages to mobile and you're kind of forcing your mobile users to accept these four meg pages and it's just killing, you know, their plans, their data plans, then obviously that's a reason to care about it. But from a user experience metric, just a pure user perceived performance uh, perspective, then page size doesn't matter. So what we really want people to care about are if they care about user experience are finding the right metrics that actually matter and you know what i push for really really hard is for people to experiment with custom metrics um, via the the w3c user timing spec which are metrics that you can actually wrap around it marks and measures that you can wrap around key elements on your page that your users probably care about that correlate to 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 um, kind of their ability to engage with the page. So it could be title of an article if it's a media site, or it could be a hero image or a product image or whatever the main elements are on your page. And you can actually measure those and see see how quickly those are rendering if you're using any kind of um, synthetic or, or RUM tools that support them. So, it, so again, it's, it's kind of keeping your eye on the prize. The, the prize is happy, engaged users who are actually able to do the things that they want to do on your site as quickly as possible. Okay, so now, Tammy, I'm just going to ask you to, to look ahead. What do you think we might be talking about at the Fluent Conference, say, three or four years down the line? From where I sit, I'm not so much thinking of new trends so much as I'm thinking of just current threads becoming more entrenched. And so what I mean by that is, just as a, as a for instance, you know, when performance, the whole idea of web performance, meaning meaning speed, um, kind of came up in, in people's consciousness about 10 years ago, it was a niche topic. And there were some people who thought it was, it was a bit trendy to care about page speed. And now, of course, 10 years later, we see that actually it's not it's not a trend. It's absolutely fundamental. And um, and and we have conferences that are actually completely about web performance, and which is great. And so uh, we see and we're seeing the same thing for accessibility now, for example, and security. So I think that it's just the, what I would like to see happen in the, in the next three or four years is this idea becoming more entrenched in the consciousness of not just developers and designers, but much higher up in the organization that you can't call your site fully performant and um, user-friendly 
until you've actually nailed all of these elements of, of performance. So it's not just available because people have always cared about availability from the beginning of the web, but also making it fast, making it secure, making it accessible to as many people as possible and recognizing the portions of, of users who have not gotten great user experiences and recognizing that's actually quite a large cohort of the public, you know, anywhere between 20 and 35%, depending on how you think of it. So my hope is that in three or four years, we're seeing um, just uh, people coming to Fluent with better and better case studies that show how performance, accessibility, security became entrenched in their organizations and um, and actually helped move the needle on, on the business side of things. Well, Tammy, this has been great. Um, if our listeners want to find out more about you and your activities, where can they go? Well, I'm on Twitter at TamEverts.com. And um, I, I work for Speed Curve. So I write on the Speed Curve blog, which is just Speed Curve slash blog. And yeah, and I'll be, of course, I'll be at Fluent. So you can find me at Fluent. I hope to see as many people as possible there. And I'll be roaming the halls. And, uh, and yeah, I, I love having those hallway conversations at Fluent. Great. Tammy Everts, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. And thank you all for listening. Once again, the O'Reilly Fluent Conference will be held June 11th through 14th in San Jose, California. For more information or to register, go to O'Reilly.com slash conferences. To access the books written by our guests, including Kyle Simpson's You Don't Know JS series of books and Tammy Everett's book, Time is Money, The Business Value of Web Performance, go to Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform at safaribooksonline.com. And we'll have links to these specific items, as well as a few other things we talked about during this podcast in the show notes that accompany this episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.